Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And today's very special guest is Ms. Sarah Slack. Uh, Ms. Slack is a physical therapist with over 13 years of experience and experience in a lot of different diverse venues. She has been in skilled nursing facilities. She's been in outpatient uh, clinic class, uh, settings. She's been in inpatient settings. She has worked in orthopedics. She's... Um, basically done it all if you if you think about it and look at, at her sort of background there but now she has a special interest in um, working with people who have persistent pain and specifically people who who also come in with uh, orthopedic related issues and a subset who are dancers and we will dive into that a little bit more but sarah thank you so much for joining us today on straight shot health talk you're very welcome all right so you know i kind of just gave a little bit of uh, a brief introduction there, but could you go a little bit deeper? Why is it that you went into physical therapy and, and what were your experiences and choices with that? So I went into physical therapy actually via, by way of occupational therapy. Oh. <laughs> I had an aunt who was an occupational therapist and kind of introduced me to the rehab world. I was a dancer and my family was like, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> so I had to find something kind of uh, more, what I guess my parents would say was a more stable, <laughs> stable job. But I was really interested in science. And so I thought, well, this is interesting. And of course, as dancers, the further you along you get in dancing, you actually start seeing physical therapists. So I had some personal um experiences in physical therapy as a patient, um, some that were not great and some that were, were pretty good. Um, so I wasn't a hundred percent convinced that I wanted to go into physical therapy until I actually completely finished my undergrad had a completely different job in, um, health promotion science and research at OHSU, um, in Portland. Mm -hmm. And then started observing physical therapists in some other settings and decided that the diversity in the field was so interesting, obviously, that um, I thought I'd give it a go. No, that, that makes perfect sense. And uh, I, don't, I don't think this is necessarily a stereotype, but it, it seems to me a lot of physical therapists or people who have gone into physical therapy have either an interest in movement or oftentimes a movement-based background. I mean, I, I know quite a few people who were athletes before or interested in dance or whatever. Did that, did that have something to do with it for you, that movement aspect? Or Yeah, that had, a, that had a, uh, probably the biggest impact for me. I was really interested in teaching people how to move. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my first interests was, oh, I think I'll be a dance teacher. I'll be a dance instructor. So that really informed a lot of my interest in physical therapy and like how do you train people to become dancers how do you train people to move so then you start getting a lot deeper into um what it takes to teach me people to move well move differently move better and then what do you do when there's a problem mm -hmm. and and that's actually two different skill sets but because not only do you not have to move now mm -hmm. you have to have the ability to teach someone else how to move. And that part right. gets left in the, you know, always shocking to me. And, and I shouldn't be shocked because I experienced it myself is we assume that that teaching is easy, that all you have to do is say something and people will do it. And 
I, from my experience, that's not the case, but how about your experience? Is that a different kind of... Right. No, that's very true and actually very interesting. I've reconnected recently with an old professor of mine from my, my dance program at University of Oregon. My undergraduate degree is actually in dance, and we had a course all in teaching dance mm-hmm. and how you actually teach people to dance, how you teach them to move. Knowing how to move does not necessarily just automatically equate to you know how to teach someone how to move. Um, And there are people who devote their entire careers to the study of how do you teach this? Mm -hmm. Um, So you can spend a lot of time um, figuring, figuring that out and things sometimes go well and they, sometimes they don't go well. You, it's really a matter of really paying attention to your client or whoever you're working with and figuring out how, how do they learn? Mm -hmm. It's not cookie cutter at all. Yeah, interesting. And then something else you just said there made me think of this because you were, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you said just because you know how to move doesn't mean that you understand how to teach to move. Correct. So mm-hmm. did you, how about this? Just because you move, does that mean that people actually understand how they move? Oh, <laughs> excellent question. No, you know, a lot of people are very, I, maybe a, not a great choice of words, but a lot of people are very disconnected from their bodies. They don't have any sense of how they're moving, what's happening. They just go through their day. And um, I see a lot of people who come into the clinic that really have no idea how they're getting the job done. And even some of the simplest of movements and activities can can be extremely challenging for them because of this disconnect between um, we, we call it just basically it's a disconnect between their mind and their body. They're not, they're not really aware and um, have any sort of intention or attention to, to what's happening. Yeah. And so it's, there's a, I think a lot of us have a tendency to move through life unaware and Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't intend I, I don't think about how I move on a, on a day-to-day basis. And it would be one of those assumptions is because I've, I've experienced it. I don't necessarily need to learn how to move, but I could see where that may be beneficial, particularly in, in certain fields, but um, just for anybody to have a little bit of, of awareness and understanding on how your body works, uh, I would expect would actually provide you some great dividends because you can actually improve once you're aware and you start understanding processes. Right. Yeah. You can, you can make choices, I think, about um, what you choose to do, how you choose to do it when you have more of that awareness and that intention. Um, and you can maybe accomplish some things that you really had never thought that you could do um, just by a little bit more awareness and intention with what you're doing. And in terms of, you know, rehab in the field that I'm in, a lot of it comes down to, can you, can you be more aware about what you're doing possibly to prevent injury, mm-hmm. particularly with dancers. You know, when we're working with dancers, a lot of it is injury prevention as well as rehab. And are they attending to what they're doing and are they moving with some sort of intention and um, making appropriate choices for themselves and how their body works and how their body functions? That's something I run into a lot of that I really try to dispel is that there are specific rules for how 
every human body should move, that we all should move exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, never let your knees go over your toes. Never do this. Never do that. Always sit up straight. Every body is different. And everyone really needs to learn how their body works, how their body functions and how to best use their own body for themselves rather than trying to follow kind of an arbitrary set of rules. I, I love that because it's sort of like, you know, I think that people ex expect that sometimes that we all have or there's a perfect way to move and we all should move that perfect fashion. But there's if you kind of extrapolate that just to the whole brain body interface, it's like. You would never tell somebody there's a perfect way of thinking, and we all have to think in that exact same way. Um, it's just kind of fascinating to me. Right. It's amazing the look on people's faces when I tell them there is no such thing as perfect posture. Their <laughs> eyes just kind of like light up, and they look at me like I'm nuts because, you know, they've heard this for years about how you have to have good posture. And I talk a lot about variety, variability. You need to have options you need to be able to move in a lot of different ways no one can sit in one perfect position all day long that's just mm -hmm. not possible yeah so um this is i'm going to segue this obviously into sure. what we were originally going to talk about and and that <laughs> is because is pain so you've right. had all these diverse experiences you've talked about you know awareness intention and movement your your history as a dancer working with dancers and things but now you do a lot of work with pain and I'd be kind of interesting as how has that, how has those experiences in your personal experience sort of molded together uh, into what it, what it sounds like it's a choice for you to do. It's this is this, you were, you're intentionally seeing people with persistent pain. And the reason I bring that up is there's a lot of practices where people don't want to see people with persistent pain. So, so how have you kind of come and brought this stuff together? Right. That's a, that's a really good question. It's been a really slow process for me. Um, I, I just look at it as just very much an evolution. I distinctly remember when I early on, when I was a physical therapist, um, a small little hospital and outpatient clinic at the coast, I remember being so frustrated working with people who had chronic pain. Um, and there was one patient in particular that always comes to mind when I think about it. And the what wasn't making sense for me and what I just could not wrap my brain around was how for this particular individual, every single sensation that she experienced, she perceived as pain, everything. I mean, we it was like, I had to teach her what it felt like simply to contract a muscle. Uh, I had to try to help her understand what it felt like simply for a joint to move. Every sensation in her body was, um, was perceived as pain. And it, that was frustrating. That was so hard for me. I, I had no idea what I, what I was doing with this individual. And I got to a point where I actually decided I wasn't going to work in outpatient clinic anymore. I wasn't going to work in orthopedics. I said, forget it. I can't handle this. I can, I, this pain thing is just burning me out. I have no idea what I'm doing. I felt completely clueless and, and inadequate. So I, that's when I went to skilled nursing for a while and strictly acute care, um, feeling like, oh, acute pain, that's different. You know, people who've just had, you know, an injury just recently, that's easier. That's, that's not as challenging. 
Um, but then as you continue on through your practice, you start discovering, well, gee, you know, all of these people are, this keeps coming back. It keeps coming back around some of these same really complex, problematic um, scenarios where you feel like, I don't know what's happening. I don't understand. And all along the way, bits and pieces of the pain science that we've all working so hard to understand now at this point, we're being introduced and I can look back and go, Oh yeah, I went to that course and they kind of sort of talked about it and it was kind of introduced here and there, but it was just, it never really came together. I, in fact, I found some, I've been cleaning out my garage. <laughs> I found some old course notes where um, Mosley and Butler's explain pain ideas were introduced along with a list of like three or four other pain theories and those were just introduced and then it wasn't integrated into the rest of the course so I wasn't really getting that that integration into well how do I use this information what do we do with this so it wasn't until about three years ago really that um, I got to the point where I really dove in and felt like I really want to understand this and get a sense of how how can we work with these people better what what can we do that's better um part of that was actually a little bit just personal in terms of the opioid crisis I have family members who have who've been impacted by that and seeing their struggle with chronic pain. And again, this idea that this doesn't make sense. There's something else um, going on here. So it's been a really kind of long haul from start to where I am now in terms of this slow evolution of understanding and deciding that, yeah, I really do want to understand this better. Yeah. And you, and you bring up a, a couple words that, that are common, right? The frustration and mm -hmm. how many people, when you are starting it, I don't care whatever kind of practice you're doing. If you are in healthcare, I don't, if you're a physician, if you're a physical therapist, occupational therapist, psychologist, or whatever, uh, most people, and I use the word most because I can't say all because I haven't talked to everyone, but every single person I've ever talked to has gone through a period of time when there is this, this frustration that comes from seeing people with chronic pain. Not everybody. But we can all provide an example of an extraordinarily challenging person that we've worked with. And uh, the, the reason I bring that up is because I'm, I'm always I'm kind of interested in, in, in delving a little bit more in your frustration. What did you were you were you truly frustrated with them or were you frustrated with something else? Right. Good question. I I would say there was a little bit of me, I think sometimes it was frustrated with the individual because, you know, they're coming to you for help, but they're not, it felt like they're not listening, they're not getting it, you know, and this is, this was back in the day when a lot of therapists, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to, because <laughs> that's just the kind of person I am. But, you know, patients who were on organ health plan, there was sort of this stigma attached to that, that uh, they're not really coming here for help. And, you know, what am I going to do with this person? But really, it, it was really more about me, because in school, it we were really trained to find the problem, fix the problem. Mm -hmm. Our education, at least where I went to school, was very much focused on 
pathoanatomical and biomechanical diagnoses. We were supposed to look for those red flags. We were supposed to rule things out. We had just come out of, you know, the doctorate level programs in physical therapy were relatively new. So they were really pushing this, your ability to almost work as like a primary care provider and, and have these people come directly to you. So the onus was on you to figure out what was wrong. And if you couldn't figure it out, then you weren't doing your job. You didn't, you, you were kind of failing. And so not being able to fix people was really frustrating because that was the pressure that we felt we were under um, after having that type of, um, of education. Yeah, no, and, that, and that's, that's common. And again, in healthcare, so many of us go into it with the idea that we fix people. Mm-hmm. And if you, if, and I, I kind of view it after a lot of introspection is that if you're if you feel like your purpose is to fix someone and you try and you try and you try and yet that person doesn't get better. I could and you're like, well, how, why I'm, I did the same thing I did with this person that I did to with Joe and look at Joe. They're doing great. But Jan over here isn't working. And so that frustration has tends to spill over a lot of times um, on our patients. But. I, I do think it has a lot to do with frustration with ourselves that somehow we are feeling that we are failing. Right. And that is not a pleasant experience for anybody. Oh no, that makes it so hard to go back to work every day. <laughs> <laughs> really hard. But now and that's your choice. You're, you're actually working with people. Did you? I mean, right. So right. what changed for you? <laughs> so um, a few things. And I, you know, I was trying to think of when it occurred to me. And I think that some of it has occurred, again, through some personal experiences, in terms of understanding, you don't have control over every situation. You are not there to fix any one individual person. It was it was a few different things, and just um, professionally and personally, that finally, the, that epiphany for me was that, it's not my responsibility to fix someone and that's okay. This is going to sound like a funny analogy. My dad told me this years ago when, um, when I first got out of school, he, um, he was for a time, he was an engineer, but then he went into commercial fishing full time and (laughs) he did crab fishing. And when they had, the big tank that the crab went in, they used to circulate water and oxygen through this tank, trying to keep the crab alive for as long as they could. And he said, let me tell you, Sarah, he said, in your profession, he said, what you're going to find, he says, it's like the crabs, the ones on the bottom, he said, what we do for them probably isn't going to help them any. (laughs) The ones in the middle, yeah, maybe, maybe pumping that water and oxygen, keeping that flow in there, that might help them. You know, they might, they might do okay. The ones on the top, they're going to be fine no matter what we do. So Mm -hmm. he said it was the same for my patients. He says, there's going to be some of them. It doesn't matter what you do. They're not going to get better. There's going to be some of them that the things that you do. Yeah, that might help. They're they'll, they'll do well because of what you've done. He said, then there's going to be a group of them no matter, it doesn't matter what you do. I said, they're going to get better anyway, not going to have anything to do with you. And so it took me a long time to really kind of finally, uh, get that, you know, really kind of live that and go, okay, 
it's not all about me and what I'm doing. There's, there's so much more to it because of that individual person. And so I'm, it's not my job to fix the problem. Um, it's my job to work with them and help them help themselves. So expanding on that a little bit, what you're basically saying is with this kind of stratus, like this, this crab thing is you, you can, you can pump in the water, you can pump in the oxygen, you can stir things around. Heck, you could even probably put your hand in and pull on a crab, but, but people have to do some work on their own. Is that right? And they have to kind of move in, in, in being engaged in that as well. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think that, um, that gets misinterpreted quite a bit, I think, uh, because they're well, you're you're saying that it's all my fault, and I, we're not saying that at all. Right. What we're saying is, and in another um, colleague of ours has said this, maybe in previous interview or, or something, like that, but but there, Jones of points is, and rather than fixing fault, what you can do is actually accept responsibility not that it is your fault in any way but sometimes you have to assume that responsibility because you're the only one who can actually demonstrate change right right you know exactly the response able you know (laughs) versus right (laughs) uh one of my professors used to say i can't care more about your problem than you do (laughs) yes yeah And, and that's and that's basically it you know i I can't go home at night worrying about your problem. If you're going home and you're not doing anything at all about your problem, not doing anything to help yourself, why am I going home and thinking about this all night long, trying to figure out what to do about it? You know, the individual that um, is is looking for the help and the care should be doing an awful lot more of that than than I am. And then I would also say, though, that our jobs as healthcare uh, clinicians, given the knowledge that we have and the skill sets that we're supposed to be developing, though, is to encourage people to facilitate that change in themselves. Right. You know, rather than this focus of fixing things, which we're not really developing any skill sets, really encouraging any engagement, and it really doesn't work for most chronic conditions, um, mm-hmm. is that facilitation mindset and approach. So right. have you, um, which, which personally, I, I think has a lot more in common with teaching, than it does with a lot of the other things that we do. So I'd be kind of curious is how have you, have you, have you incorporated that educational skill set in your practice now? And if so, what are things that you've discovered have helped or haven't helped? Ah, another excellent question. I think I've been incorporating, you know, some of my education, skills in education and teaching, you know, over, over the years, over the course of, of, uh, of my career for quite some time, not necessarily very skillfully early on, uh, don't necessarily know if it's very skillful now, but it's very different now in terms of, instead of me just sort of presenting here, here's what you need to know. Here's how you're going to do this. Here's how you should do this. Um, this is what is going to work for you. Um, I do an awful lot more in terms of really listening to the client, really listening to what's going on with them, meeting them where they are and trying to understand first, are they interested in learning? You know, do they want to learn? What do they want to learn about? You know, what's important to them? Not what do I think they need to know? 
and then really carrying it on like a dialogue and a conversation and finding those open places where maybe there is a little bit of gap in their knowledge or their understanding um, that they seem open to some education. So it's a lot more of it's a it's a lot more of an interactive collaborative effort at this point than say like I used to think of you know the teacher and the instructor in front of the class or the the PT in front of the patient saying here's what you need to know here's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely changed in terms of of how I of how I do that. Um, if that answers your question a little bit. No, no, I think it does. And you, you had a, an absolute gold statement in there. It was about how to identify what's important to them. Mm-hmm. Because, again, if you are not listening to who you're working with, we tend to make assumptions or projections upon them. And right. I, I think that is so key is what's important to them and how right. can we help them to get what they want when it comes to health. (laughs) And honestly, sometimes it actually makes our job easier. I have had a patient come in and when I asked, you know, what they wanted out of this physical therapy, what they wanted to learn, they just said, I want to know if, I want to know if uh, there's anything really wrong with my neck on my x-ray. And if not, I'm good. I'm Mm -hmm. fine. That's all they wanted. And so that was it. Their x-ray was fine. It was normal. And she said, okay, done. That's all she wanted to know. And it was <laughs> easiest, easiest client I've ever had to work with. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know? Yeah. So if you listen to them <laughs> and they just flat out will tell you what they want, it can actually make your job a whole lot easier. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Now that obviously doesn't happen all the time because sometimes it it becomes a little (laughs) bit more challenging as well. But so how, how, but I, you know, how do you, you know, and bring this up is because you have to listen to them. You have to figure out what's important to them. But the other part is we have to actually understand what they know. Because sometimes we make assumptions that someone doesn't want to do something when it really is that it isn't that they're resistant or they you know, they just don't want to get, I, I really hate it when people say they just don't want to get well. How right. many people actually would choose to be sick all the time? Right. It, and so, you know, how, how do we, you know, so that other thing is, well, how have you worked with people that maybe were, were you perceived as difficult, but to cool out, pull out that, that, uh, that missing piece. Cause sometimes that little switch can be a, a little, little piece in there that we're just missing on what their knowledge base is. Right, exactly. And, you know, I see an awful lot of people who have already been to a lot of practitioners Mm -hmm. at this point in my career. I am seeing people who have been all over the place. They've been to other states. They've been to the Mayo Clinic. They've been to um, OHSU in Portland. They've been all over the place and been through an awful lot of therapy already. And in my head, I'm thinking, boy, gee, you know, what can I, you know, what do you, what do you want from me? And a lot of times the question I simply will ask them is tell me what you know about your condition. You know, just have them explain to me what it is they already know, what they believe, what they've been told. Mm -hmm. And you find out all kinds of things. You find out oftentimes they haven't been told anything. They haven't been given any education about what's going on with them or it's extremely minimal, or it's way off base. 
I have patients who've told me that basically a neurologist told them this might be as good as it gets for them. So they already have that in their mindset that mm, this is this is as good as it's going to get. I'm not going to get any better. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a question that I will frequently ask to just get to get to that education piece, that knowledge piece of what do you know about, you know, tell me, tell me what you know about uh, your condition. And it, and it makes perfect sense. In any other setting outside of healthcare, we would probably do that. So if you, I, I mean, I'm just thinking if you were a dance instructor and you had somebody that was stumbling and having difficulty with whatever those dance moves, you wouldn't say, oh my gosh, you just don't want to dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'd have a visual on understanding what their probable background is, and you would probably ask them, "What's your experience with dance? What do you know?" Right, <laughs> right, right. And I will also ask people, you know, tell me what you know about pain, um, or how would you explain explain pain to someone who? This is a silly question, but I said, imagine an alien from another planet who doesn't experience pain. How are you going to explain pain to them when they're looking at you going, well, why do you experience that? What's that all about? I ask people, what would you tell someone? Um, and you get a lot of interesting answers out of people and you really start to get a sense of what they, what they do understand or what they believe about what's going on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And those beliefs can be really key because you sort of hinted at it um, just previously as well as if someone has been told, say, like, I think you, you, you discussed a neurologist that had told someone, well, this is the best it's ever going to be for you. Mm-hmm. If you honestly and truly believe that, how likely are you to participate in whatever care that is, you know, people are saying, well, you have to do this. Well, if you're, if you believe that you can't get better, how likely right. are you to actually do whatever it is that someone, just, you, you would see it as a waste of time. Right. Exactly. And I have, and my follow-up question to that individual, uh, when they said that they were told this, I asked flat out, I said, do you believe that? And the answer was some days, yes, some days, no. Mm -hmm. So that's, then you take those little opportunities where, okay, some days, no, tell me more about that. What's, you know, what gives you that sense that maybe that neurologist is wrong and maybe you can get better. Yeah. So important. And, and, and we, you know, we just tend to not, I I just kind of look at is if you, if we understand how amazing our, our brains and bodies are and how resilient and, and just how capable of healing they are, you know, what, to tell someone that they can't get better. I just, oh my, mm-hmm. I, and I've done it. Uh, that's the thing. I just, I look right. back on my, I have said that to people or said, well, maybe that, you know, all you can do is manage now. And, right. um, what, you know, what kind of arrogant assumption is that, that someone, cause I, I and I, I firmly believe this in the, is anybody, you can always get better. The question is right. how much, and mm-hmm. we don't know, right. We don't know until we actually try. <laughs> Right. I know. And, you know, and working in places like acute care or skilled nursing facilities where we've seen, I've seen some amazing Mm -hmm. things where they didn't, you know, patients who literally half of their brain was damaged by a severe stroke. And this individual is up around walking, talking, able to read a phone book, make a phone call. I mean, just all kinds of amazing things. So that tell you, you know, we really don't, know everything we really don't understand how this all works and we can't say whether or not 
someone is going to get X amount better or not. You know, we have to, so that leaves that little bit of hope. I always try to keep that, that door open, that there's always hope that things are going to improve and get better. Now that makes, it makes perfect sense. And I, I think some of the concerns, if there's a clinician out there, because uh, I, I, I see this sometimes people, well, you don't want to give them false hope. Right. <laughs> But what what exactly is false hope? I I would mm-hmm. I would wager that false hope is when you are promising a specific outcome. Mm-hmm. That I think would be if you're promising someone they're going to do X, Y, and Z, and and you don't you can't. I mean, we're, none of us are. Whatever. Who are those people who can see the future? We you know we can't see the future. That would absolutely be false hope. But can someone actually get better? I think that you know when you view better as a process rather than a specific outcome, I think that can change things. And why would any, why would you take that away from anybody? Right. Right. Exactly. And what does better look like? Yes. For that. For them. (laughs) Yeah. Because again, because again, better for some people is, you know, we'd have it in our heads like, oh, I want to be a 10 out of 10. You know, yeah, this person probably wants to be perfect. They want to be completely pain free and, and be able to do everything. I have patients who tell me they're like, if I can go from a four to a five, that's great. I'll be happy with that. So it really, again, it keeps coming back to really talking to your client, your individual about what they want, what they expect. Um, Because, you know, me, my, and I think it comes down to, you know, making sure we're not projecting our, our personal, what I would want. Well, if it was me, I would want to be completely back to normal. I would want, you know, to be completely pain-free and be able to go back to dance class. Well, that's me. That's my picture of better. But this isn't about my picture of better. I've got to find out what that picture looks like for someone else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sarah, we've been talking for over half an hour now. And I could probably talk to you for a couple (laughs) hours. I I always, I say that all the time because... You know, there's always such, so many ways we could go and, and uh, so much more we could discuss. I would love to get it more into your dance and your teaching and how possibly you're incorporating that practice. But I, I want to be cognizant of your time as well. So what I would like to end up with is if, if you only had one thing, let's say there, there was someone who was a client that was being referred to you. What's the one thing that you would want them to know before they saw you when it came to their pain? And on the flip side of that, What's the one thing that you would want your colleagues to know that, th- that you think is key that maybe not all of them uh, appreciate when it comes to pain or pain with their patients and things like that? So first would be the, your client-centric one, and the second one would be your, your colleague-centric one. Hmm. I should have known you were going to ask me that <laughs> for, the one, for the one thing. Um, you know, actually, I'm, I might. I might actually give both my client and my colleague kind of the, the same, the same uh, advice a little bit That's allowed. Um, in terms of, I think we all need to be curious and op- open to learning and also not just, and not getting it right. Sometimes, you know, that there's, there's going to be some trial, trial and error. Um, and we have to be okay with that. I love. And I, I think love the that. curiosity piece of it is if if pay, if clients can be really curious about what's going on, and and be interested in what's going on and interested in learning, 
I think that opens a big door for them. And the same goes for my colleagues. If they just allow themselves to be curious about it, it's not quite as scary. It's not so daunting to really work with, with this population. No, that, that's, that, that's beautiful. Curiosity and learning. Um, and I like, what I like about the learning aspect is you, you, you kind of hinted on it is learning is not perfection. That means there's going to mm-hmm. be stumbles. And actually we have a tendency to learn as much or more from those stumbles than we do. Then if everything went perfect and you know how much there's no learning in perfection. <laughs> exactly. And I know that for myself early on, especially in school, you know, there's this major fear of getting it wrong because you are working with another human being. Mm-hmm. You, you, you want to get it right because if it was you, you'd want your practitioner to get it right too. Um, but that's just not the way that it works. We're working with humans and humans are amazingly complex. So um, we have to be okay with, with, um, with the evolution of things. You know, sometimes things take a little bit longer than, than you expect, but if the more you dive in, um, it starts coming together. Yeah. And, and again, the more complex the scenario, and I would wager that pain for anyone, even those quote unquote simple pains are mm-hmm. some of the most complex experiences that we experience, <laughs> you know? Right. So right. Uh, there, there's, there's always room to learn on that, both for ourselves or with our clients and, and our colleagues as well. So, well, Sarah, where can people find you? If they were interested in learning more or if they were interested in seeing you. Where can people find me? People can find me at um, Samaritan Physical Rehab Specialist in Corvallis. Uh, That is my clinic location. And that's about it. I'm not not an internet star. I have no... social media following or anything along those lines (laughs) you just focus on helping people so that's that's perfect and it's very important by the way because we we need the the more people we have out in the community and we're so blessed to have you in our community here so thank you so much for coming on the show today thank you kevin i appreciate the chance to to talk to you a little bit because the more i think we talk about this stuff the the more we actually understand it better ourselves so absolutely then learning never stops right okay take care you too and everybody else out there thank you so much for joining us today and until next time stay well